All right, so we are going to dive into 1 Samuel 18 through 20. Appreciate Pastor Ty subbing for me last week, and I'll have you know I gave him more than 40 minutes notice. <laughs> I gave him a couple days notice um, that I was not going to be able to make it last week. So he, um, he, was, he, he was able to cover with us chapter 17 and, um, and the, 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 the great Sunday school story of David versus Goliath, but so much more in that chapter than just um, the small guy beats the big guy. And we hear, you know, in the media and in the world around us today, oh, it's a David and Goliath story, you know, and if, if there's a sports team that is like an underdog, you know, something like that. But what we see is that the, the difference maker was not an able shepherd with a sharp sling. It was a great God who won the victory for his people and for his glory. And that, that story has after effects. And that's what really these three chapters are about. They are about what happens now after David has meteorically rose, risen in prominence in Israel to be this great champion, this great warrior, who people are looking at him and saying, wow, he beat the 10-foot-tall champion of the Philistines. And so there's lots of different things that are happening because of that, and the effect on people is different depending on who they are. And so as we go through these three chapters, that's really going to be our focus, is looking at the effect on all of these different people. And what we'll see is some minor characters that kind of take center stage in these three chapters. We've talked all along in the book of 1 Samuel how we see major characters and they rise and then they start to decline in prominence. And as they're declining, another major fig uh, figure is rising. And we'll see that continue today. We'll see that um, Saul, a major figure, is declining rapidly in prominence. And we see David, uh, the next major figure, who is rising quickly in prominence as well. Saul's precipitous decline continues and tragically continues to the point of criminal behavior. It really is astounding how far he goes. What we're going to see is Saul continues to be driven by fear. That is the driving force of his life. And we'll see the really awful effects that fear has in the life of King Saul. So what we'll do first, we'll talk through um, these three chapters, make some observations about different points, and then we're going to circle back and we're going to talk specifically about Saul's fear and some of the verses that point us really well to that. So we're going to read um, small selected portions. Um, this, is, this portion that we'll read now is probably the largest one that we'll read. Um, and so if someone could read for me verses 1 through 9 of chapter 18. So nine verses. I didn't scan it to see if there was any bad names in it. I don't think there is. One through nine. Claire, thanks. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's <coughs> house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword 
and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the people, the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Thank you, Claire. So... I've, I've labeled these first nine verses a summary of effects because we see this, the effects on a variety of different people. And it's not on the screen, but it's in your notes, all of these different um, folks that, have, that are affected. And the, the first one is on, the first effect is on Jonathan, Saul's son. And Jonathan commits to David. He, his soul is knit to him, it says in verse one. It says he loved him as his own soul. And so rather than feel vulnerable, or threatened, as someone might in Jonathan's position. Jonathan embraces David. He gives him gifts. He, verse 4, he stripped himself of the robe. He gave it to him. He gave him his armor. He gave him his sword. He gave him his bow. He gave him his belt. He gave David all of the indicia of the crown prince of Israel. Some commentators have said that this was part of the covenant that, uh, that Jonathan made with uh, David in verse 3. We're not told what the substance of the covenant was specifically here. And there is a symbolic nature to this. This is a symbolic transfer of the kingdom from the line of Saul, Jonathan as the heir apparent, to David, the newly appointed king. We see that there's an effect on David himself. Verse 5 says David went out and was successful wherever he went. Successful is translated differently in other translations. Anyone have a different translation in verse 5a? Uh, it says David went out and was successful. So one other translation says he behaved wisely. So there's a link between how one behaves and how, um, how their activities are viewed as being successful or not. This word, um, this Hebrew word, is translated successful four times in 1 Samuel. All four of those instances are in this chapter. All four of these instances refer to David. All four of these instances attribute the success, the wise behavior that David had to a very specific thing. And that is the influence of the Lord in his life, the presence of God in David's life. There's also an effect at the end of verse 5 on the people. <clears throat> and it says that the people appreciated him. All this was good in the sight of all the people. They appreciated David for what he was doing, for the battles that he was fighting for Israel. Similarly, Saul's servants appreciated David. They likewise saw what was good. And then in verses 6 and 7, we have kind of this classic uh, passage where the, the women um, of Israel are coming out as the men are returning from battle. There's some debate in verse 16 among the commentators whether um, it should be translated the, the Philistine or the Philistines. Um, and it, 
that leads into a whole nother debate about whether all of this is chronological or not. I'm not gonna get into all of that because it's not completely clear to me that one is a better answer than the other, so there's a little bit of speculation there. I'm happy to take it just as the striking down the Philistine, striking down Goliath, as our ESV um, translators have rendered it. Whichever it is, the Israelite women are celebrating this victory, and they are celebrating it with this parallel um, poetic nature. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Um, that, that probably was not meant to be demeaning to Saul, but he took it that way. Well, of course he took it that way because he is like hypersensitive now to anything that could possibly be looking at him as no longer the, uh, the leader of Israel. His pride is hurt. His desire to be popular with people that we have seen over and over again in his life is threatened. So we see this effect on um, Saul of this jealousy, and that jealousy we will see in the rest of these chapters grows into anger and into paranoia and into murderous thoughts. Verses 10 through 16, we see that it devolves into Saul fearing David. He fears him so much that he tries to eliminate him. So in, 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 the, in these verses, which we won't take the time to read, Saul tries to, to kill David twice. So David is once again playing his liar when the evil spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul, and Saul has a spear in his hand while David has a musical instrument in his hand. One's armed for concert and the other's armed for war, um, and I can't imagine being David, you know, being in the same room with this man who it says he raved within his house and, and verse 10. That the harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house. This word rave is the same word that, that is used elsewhere for prophesy. So there's like this frenetic energy that is associated with it and then how it's translated depends on the context. So he's a bit of, you know, could I say a madman at this point? And then this is the music is supposed to calm him and he is brooding and he is thinking and he decides that he would be better off without David, this person who has delivered Israel from the Philistines and continues to fight um, Saul's battle. And this, this rage fuels this murderous attempt on David's life. Now, can you imagine having this happen once? If I'm David, I'm like, I'm fine with the sheep. I'm headed back to the pasture. I don't need this anymore. Um, you know, I'll leave my liar on the stool. You can have somebody else play for you. But he comes back and he does it again. And Saul does it again. You see David's humility and his obedience to the task that he has in front of him. And Saul's fear stems from realizing that the Spirit of the Lord is with David. Look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Here, Saul, the, the king of Israel, is afraid of David, the little shepherd boy. Why? Because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. The Lord was with David, and Saul knew it. And Saul also knew that the Lord had departed from him, and he's afraid. His fear is going to drive him now. He realizes that Perhaps he would be better off if David were not around, and so he sends him out of his court, verses 13 to, through 16. He tries this new tactic. 
He puts David in harm's way by putting him into the military. But God, being God, takes this that is meant for evil and turns it into good. And he blesses David more. And this military commission builds relationships, we see in verse 13. And the Lord's presence builds his reputation, and Saul's fear grows in verse 15. And in direct comparison to Saul's fear growing, the people's love grows for David because he is just this completely transparent warrior going in and out in front of them. Then we see another of Saul's Saul's family loving David. Jonathan loved David in the first few verses of this chapter. Now we see um, Saul's daughter, uh, Michael, love him as well. At first, it appears that, he, that Saul is making good on his promise to give his daughter to the man who killed Goliath. He promises one daughter, Merib, and David reacts and says, you know, who am I to be the, the king's son-in-law? And so um, Saul gives Merib to another. And in, so in fairness, it looks like David has declined the proposal. He may be just being humble, but Saul did not make good on his promise. Um, Michael and David come to Saul and say, you know, they are in love. It says in verse 20, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So in a rational moment, Saul sees um, the two of them and is going to bless them. But Saul's motives aren't completely pure. Verse 21, Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. You see then that David still has this view that he's not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. And David, um, Saul sends servants to talk to David about what the bride price would be. Ordinarily in those times, um, the, the suitor would bring um, a gift to the, the father and in, in exchange for the bride. But David re- characterized himself as poor and of no reputation. Verse, tw- verse 25, we see again something that, that Saul thought. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So he wasn't just trying to eliminate enemies from Israel. He was trying to eliminate David. And it would be much more convenient if David died a warrior's death on the field of battle because then Saul couldn't be blamed for it in any way. Saul thought that this was the way to do it. Of course, God was in David's corner, protected David. David goes out and accomplishes the task at the end of, 20, of, of 28, end of the chapter, verses 28 and 29. It says, Saul sees that the Lord is with David and he is more afraid. And at this point, he characterizes is David as his enemy. We see jealousy and fear just devouring Saul at this point. But what about David? Verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle as, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. David continues to have more success. His reputation grows. He's becoming a household name in Israel. Move on to chapter 19. And here we'll see repercussions from David's fear. 
I'm sorry, repercussions from Saul's fear. David was not the one that was afraid. First of all, we see Saul repeatedly trying to kill David. In verse 19, having failed to kill David a couple of times now, um, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So he just like comes right out and is like, I'm putting this on the table. This guy's my enemy. You guys are instructed to kill him on sight. You know, if you see him, you should kill him. How illogical this must seem in direct contrast to verse 30, where David is having more and more success. The servants must be looking at Saul and saying, are you out of your mind? This guy is winning battles for us. Why would we eliminate him? Another contrast says, but Jonathan, end of verse 1, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Saul feared him, tried to kill him. Jonathan delighted in him and decided to protect him. He protects him in several ways. First of all, he warns David that Saul has said this, and then he intercedes for David. He speaks well of David. He speaks truth about what David has done, how David has killed the Philistine, about how um, David has fought Saul's battles, how David is an asset to Saul's kingdom and the Israelites. He reminds Saul of his own reaction, the rejoicing that he had in verse 5b, at the end of verse 5, it said, You saw it and rejoiced. Why will you then sin against the innocent blood by killing David without cause? He calls for justice. He calls for, for Saul to start thinking rightly about what is right and what is wrong. It's not right for the king to kill someone without a cause. He challenges Saul not to sin. This is a son speaking to a father. These are bold words. This is a subject speaking to the king. In a way, he's taking his own life in his hands by speaking so deliberately and forthrightly to Saul. But to Saul's credit, he listens to Jonathan in verse 6, and he relents. Verse 6, And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So here we have a change of heart. A temporary reprieve is really all that it is. David is restored to Saul's presence in verse 7. Doesn't last for a long time. Verse 8 says, and there was war again. So we see some time has passed. There is more fighting going on, and uh, that is just external with the Philistines. We see some internal fighting in Israel where Saul attempts to kill David again. The harmful spirit does its work again. Saul tries to murder David, and David escapes Now Saul is intent on killing David, and this is where he sets up surveillance of David's house, and here Michael, Saul's daughter, aids David in escaping. Jonathan had protected David previously, now Michael protects David. Saul's family is all for David, just Saul is not for David. Saul's family is protecting the next king of Israel, the current king of Israel is trying to kill him. Michael covers for him. She lies for him. She says he's sick. He's not sick. He's just not there. There's no indication that there's any approval of this, this action. There's no indication that David said, you know, you need to lie for me. So it's really, that's on Michael. And I would say that this, this shows that she had a lack of faith in a great God to protect David, her husband. We see another problem with Michael in that she has a household God that she uses as part of this ruse. So there's not 
there's, there's not a, a, a perfect level of spirituality going on here, to say the least. Michael has some trouble. But she does buy David a little time to get away. Where will David go? It's unsafe for him to go to Bethlehem, back to his family. Saul would logically look there, and that might even result in the destruction of his family. So where does he go? He goes to Samuel for help, the one that had anointed him. Down in verse 18 through 24, David flees to Samuel. Samuel lives in Ramah, you may recall, and there's an evidently an area in Ramah called Naoth, and it says, it says that, that David and Saul, I'm sorry, David and Samuel went to Naoth in Ramah. Saul hears about it, and he sends messengers down to Naoth, and three times messengers come, and each of those times, those messengers start prophesying God's word. The Holy Spirit takes defensive action of David, and instead of like striking these men down, he says, I'm just going to take control of them. And they start prophesying God's word as a result of this. And no harm comes to David. Saul gets fed up with this, and he himself goes to Naoth, and what a surprise. Saul starts to prophesy again. He is supernaturally intercepted on his way to try to kill David. What a humbling result for this angry king. Look at what it says of him in verse 23. And he, he, Saul, went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. And thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now we've heard that before. Is Saul also among the prophets? You remember where that happened? Not rhetorical. I've been monologuing, so. Yeah, when he was first anointed, and we saw the Spirit of God come on Saul, and he prophesied, and the saying came about, is Saul also among the prophets? There was like a wonder to that. And here we see this being um, reiterated from chapter 10. And we move on to chapter 20, and chapter 20 is the, the famous chapter that is focused on Jonathan and David and their covenant relationship together, the mutual bond of love and protection that they have for each other. This relationship is front and center in the chapter, and we see the secondary character of Jonathan being developed. Jonathan obviously has a love and loyalty for his father, the king. He has a balancing act to do here. He has a love and loyalty to the next king as well, and those loves and loyalties are on a collision course. Jonathan's loyalty is divided in this chapter, and he chooses the next king of Israel over his own father. First of all, David leaves Naoth in verse 1, and he goes back presumably to Gibeah where um, Saul and Jonathan would live and says to Jonathan, what have I done? Why is Saul trying to kill me? I am about to die. And Jonathan is like denying this because Saul has done a number of these things knowing of Jonathan's love for David and not wanting him to interfere in it again. And so he doesn't believe or doesn't want to believe that um, Saul is again trying to kill David. 
verse 3, it says, But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David is really feeling the heat. He is really feeling that Saul is after him, and it's just a matter of time until he gets him. A little bit of wavering of faith going on with David here. We'll see it a little bit more as the, cha- as the chapter develops. Jonathan doesn't continue to try to convince David that he's wrong, but he just asks, verse 4, what can I do? What a good friend. You know, rather than just try to debate with your friend, like, no, you're wrong. You know, let me really tell you the way it is. Just like, okay, what can I do? What can I do to help? There's a lot of wonderful lessons that we could learn about, uh, about friendship here about loyalty. Loyalty is kind of a two-edged sword word. And David crosses the line of loyalty, and he asks his friend to lie for him. He says, here's what's going to happen. There's this feast that's going to take place. It's going to last three days. I'm not going to come. Your father's going to ask and where I am. And when he asks, you tell him that I had to go to Bethlehem for a family gathering. And we'll know by his reaction what his intentions are. They make a covenant together, verse 17, that's motivated by love. uh, Jonathan agrees to do it. Verse 17 says, Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. We back up to verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. He He wants David to trust him. He wants David to honor his commitment to his family. Jonathan is looking down the road with eyes of faith and knows that he's not going to be the king. And in that world, when one king replaced another king, it was typical for the new king to eliminate all of the family of the old king so that there would be no threat of future uprising. And Jonathan is saying, don't do that to my family. And David's good with that. And he covenants with him. So Jonathan is covenanting to keep David safe, and David is covenanting to keep Jonathan's family safe going forward. Jonathan seems to understand pretty clearly at this point that David is going to be the next king, and he is not. So then they come up with this plan on how they're going to communicate Saul's intentions without like actually necessarily getting together, and this is the, you know, shoot the arrows in the field, and if the arrows... You know, if, jo- if Jonathan yells, you know, to the lad that's chasing the arrows, they are further, go forward, then that means that David should run for his life. And if they, if he says, you know, aren't the arrows nearer to you, then he is safe. So the, the plan unfolds on the first day of the feast. Saul looks around but doesn't say anything, verse 26. He thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he is not clean. So he convinces himself that David has a legitimate reason for not being there. Saul is doing some thinking again, which is dangerous. But day two is explosive. Day two, Saul says to Jonathan, where's David? Actually, he can't even use David's name. He says, where's the son of Jesse? Like, I don't know if that's an insult or not, but it kind of feels like it is. Why has the son of Jesse, end of verse 27, why has the son of Jesse come... Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. 
So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Now, Saul doesn't exactly say, oh, that's a very legitimate reason for not being here, and I appreciate you telling me that information. (laughs) That's not the reaction at all. He is incensed. And um, some of the commentators say that the way this is translated is actually tame. So here's what Saul says, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. He's saying to Jonathan, You fool! You fool, this guy is going to take your kingdom. What's Saul missing? The kingdom's already taken. God is the one that takes the kingdom, not David. God has already said, the kingdom is rent away from you. Jonathan continues to protest, verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul is so irrational And his rage is so consuming to him that he now tries to kill his own son. The one that he was saying, you should be on the throne. Well, hold on. If you kill him, Saul, he won't be on the throne. You see the irrationality of this, that that rage and anger just, it, it prevents the brain from thinking logically when we get into that mode. And so Jonathan is grieved. He's angry in verse 34. The next morning, he goes out to the field with the boy. They execute the plan um, to communicate. And in verse 42, at the end of the chapter, they part as friends. Let's just read that. Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. They had wept together. They had... They had professed their love for each other. They had committed to each other. Both Saul and Jonathan at this point realize that David is Israel's next king. Their reactions to this truth could not be more opposite. Saul rejects it and fights against it. He opposes God's will. Jonathan embraces God's will and seeks to support it. So, let's then look back now at Saul's fears and why, why these fears are coming about. So we have a few key verses that we want to look at in the, verse, in the time that remains. Let's go back to verse 8 in chapter 18. This is after the Saul has struck down his ten thousands and or his thousands and David his ten thousands. Verse 8 of 18, and Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? His fear was that he was going to lose the kingdom. He was going to lose something that was very important to him. When something important to us is threatened, there's a natural reaction of fear. And we must ask, the, well, the fear is like the, the warning light on your dashboard of your car saying something is wrong. And what was wrong is that the kingdom had become Saul's God. It was something that he had to protect at all costs. David, Saul eyed David from that day on. 
How often did chapter 15, verse 28 ring in Saul's ears? This is where, where Saul had sinned in not obeying the Lord um, in completely wiping out the Amalekites. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. I think, this, I think these words were something that were just like repeated in Saul's head over and over again. And, and I'm, I'm saying that because of chapter, eight verse, or chapter 18, verse 8. What more can he have but the kingdom? He knows that the kingdom's being torn away. He's looking around, who's God giving it to? And David is the most likely subject at that point. He's starting to realize that David is the neighbor that is better than him, as Samuel had said. So humanly speaking, it's really a small wonder that Saul begins to take these steps to try to eliminate David. But he fails to realize that the God who gave David the victory over Goliath is going to protect David from Saul. God is bigger than Goliath. Samuel's words from God cannot and will not be changed in, in spite of Saul's efforts, but that does not prevent him from trying. Let's look at, verse, at verses 12 through 16 of chapter 18. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence, made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Why was, why was Saul afraid of David? Because he saw that God was with him. And when God is not with the leader and he's with the opponent, the leader is going to be afraid of the opponent, right? David's success creates more fear in Saul, and it's really a downward spiral at this point. Saul's fear problem start in chapter 18, by the way. It wasn't just because he saw uh, David's success. Way back in chapter 13, when he impatiently offered the sacrifice, two of his, uh, two of his four excuses were fear-based. The people are leaving, and the Philistines are about to attack. Both of those are fear, saying, I'm not going to have an army, and when I don't have an army, the enemy is going to attack me, and I'm going to be um, defeated. In chapter 17, when it came to fighting Goliath, where was Saul to be found? He was in his tent. And it actually tells us in chapter 17 that all of Israel and Saul were afraid. They were all afraid of him. Saul, the king of Israel, this you know, great stature of a man who was supposed to lead Israel in fighting battles, was in his tent saying, if someone would like to go out and fight this guy, I'll be happy to give them riches and exempt his, his father's house from taxes and um, I'll throw in my daughter. Instead of saying, God, I can't do this on my own, but this man is defying you and must be taken down. And if you want me to fight him, I will. Where was David? He was on the battlefield. He's going out with his sling and stones, and he has the courage to fight. Why? Because he knew the battle is the Lord's. The battle is not the human's. It's not his own. Go on to verses 28 and 29 in chapter 18. This is after Saul had given um, David, had given Michael to David to be his wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. 
So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul continues to observe the presence of the Lord with David. He knows that David's success is supernatural and he is very afraid because he knows that God is on his side. God's word, as spoken by Samuel, is coming true. Now let's fast forward to chapter 13, uh, chapter 20, verse 13. There we go. <clears throat> Jonathan speaking to David, but should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan blesses David with the presence of the Lord. This is more than just a nice spiritual sentiment. David, Jonathan is recognizing God's selection of David to be king and asking that God would have presence with him as he had had with Saul at the beginning of his ruling. He understands Saul now understands in verses 30 and 31, which we've already read, that David is the heir to the kingdom. So what is the key to courage and what is the antidote to fear? And we find them, whoops, a little trigger finger there. We find the answer is the same. The key to courage and the antidote to fear is the understanding of God's presence with us. We see that over and over again. We see so many times the Lord is with you. And if you look at the verses, there's going to be like a reference to David's success or to Saul's fear. God's presence with us. The fact that God is with David and not with Saul makes all the difference. Without God, Saul is trying to solve his own problems. And he's not very successful. He fails. That's no surprise, right? No wonder he's fearful. I can't do anything right. Everything I try to do is just becomes worse. With God, David lets God solve his problems. He rests in God. He is still and knows that God is God and he's in control and that God has made a promise to him and that he will fulfill it. Now, this concept of God's presence being leaked to success and courage in the face of fearful events is not unique to David and Saul's story. It's not even new in the Old Testament at this point. Does this remind you of another Old Testament warrior, Joshua? Mm -hmm. Joshua 1, 8, and 9. What does that say? Do not be afraid. Why? For I am with you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. David knew this truth, and he incorporated this theology into his psalms. Maybe the most famous psalm of all, Psalm 23, verse 4 says, You are with me. With may just be the best preposition in the Bible. You are with me. The basis for David not fearing the shadow of death in the valley was why? Because God was with him. When God is with David, he has nothing to fear because anything that happens is because God ordained it and God allowed it. And God is going to protect as he would deem best. And God is going to keep his promises that he has covenanted to them. The key to courage 
is God's presence. The key to overcoming fear in our lives is God's presence. And this isn't just an Old Testament concept either. Can you guys advance the slide for me? I'm, there we go. Maybe one more time. I forgot this. Can you imagine a fifth grade boy, 10 years old? He has to walk to school four blocks. And he has encountered some rough relationships at school, and there's some bullies that, you know, there are like five or six guys that, you know, like to gang up on him and make fun of him and, you know, you know knock his lunchbox out of his hand and, you know, just intimidate him generally. But they've never, like, hit him or anything, you know, horrible. But he lives in fear every day that this is going to go to another level that the words will turn into blows. And so he tells his dad about his fears, and his dad walks with him to school the next day. How do you think he feels? Safe. What else? Protected. Why? Because his father's there. His father's bigger. (laughs) And his dad is not going to let anything happen to him. His dad's response is, I'll take care of it. Fear is gone because dad is there all the time. Unrealistic? Humanly, yes, but not with our omnipresent heavenly father. Overly dependent? Humanly, yeah, probably, but not with our caring heavenly father. He is always there. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John chapter 14, I'm going to prepare a place that you can be with me. God wants relationship with us. He didn't save us just so that we could go off and be free from hell. (laughs) Oh, that's a nice benefit. He saved us to be with us. He's put his spirit inside of us so that that, that God can be with us all the time. And one day we will be with him forever in heaven. Saul was driven by fear because he didn't have a great relationship with God. David was driven by faith, and it resulted in courage. So fear is overcome, and faith is fueled by the presence of our Lord. Let's practice the presence of God in our lives. Let's understand the reality of it. Let's ask him to make himself known to us in those ways. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have promised to never leave us. We realize that intellectually. I pray that you'd help us to internalize that and make it part of our daily lives, that we would have such a deep-seated trust and faith in you and your presence with us and your care and love and protection, that we would rest in you and not be driven by fear in our lives. When we fear I ask that you would help us to turn to you in faith and look for your help. We ask it in the name of Jesus.